Hi, everybody. Welcome to the July 17th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dusuti. Thank you so much for joining us. We are back in the studio, sort of. Two of our panelists are here in the studio with me, safely six feet away and uh, six feet away from each other. And two of our panelists are joining us from home. I want to assure all of you at home that we are taking all the appropriate safety considerations here in our studio with our crew. We treat it like a restaurant. We all show up in our masks. Then we sit down, take them off. So uh, we're back safely. Let's get to it. Governor Jared Polis issued a statewide mask mandate on Thursday after hearing from various groups encouraging him to do so. Sheriff offices in El Paso and Weld County have already said they will not be enforcing the mandate. Meanwhile, late last week, the Board of Douglas County Commissioners submitted a written notice of intent to withdraw from the Tri-County Health Department after the health officials mandated face coverings in public areas. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, we've, we've been talking about face coverings for quite a while. Now it's a mandate, and now it's more divisive than ever. It really just kind of depends which county you live in, if it's going to be enforced, but the mandate is there. That between now uh, counties want to get out of health departments, there's a lot to pick from. What do you think about the developments of this week? Well, it's frankly a relief now that Polis has said it. People had urged him before. Other states have issued mask mandates with numbers around the country on the rise. And no matter what people are doing in Colorado, visitors to Colorado perhaps not knowing the rules, now the rules are clear. Whether or not people choose to obey them and who's going to enforce them, those are still issues. I mean, we've seen the viral video from Molly's where someone goes in to get to the liquor store and refuses to wear a mask. I mean, that's just silly. If you can walk in to get your liquor as opposed to order it delivered, you can wear a mask. So I'm glad we finally have that uh, confusion settled. Let's hope people obey it. Even if it's not the only solution, it certainly is not going to hurt. As for Douglas County, it's ironic that they decided to pull out. In the meantime, the mask mandate went statewide anyway, so it doesn't make any difference in Douglas County. But this isn't the first time someone has left Tri-County. Jefferson County left 10 years after Tri-County Health was formed to form its own health department, which seems to be going fine. Douglas County has grown so much. It was 5,000 people in 1960. So it might be big enough to sustain its own health department if it can afford it and it wants to set it up. That's fine. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You've been talking about the, uh, the wisdom behind face masks for months, well before we were even thinking about it as a society here, at least here in Colorado. Um, what do you think is behind all the controversy at this point? Well, first of all, I just want to agree with Patty about Douglas County pulling out of Tri-County Health. Another reason is that whatever you think about any particular idea, when you impose something on the people, it should be done by elected officials who are responsible to the people. And Tri-County is quite defective in its structure that an unelected uh, person can, can control all these, these people's behavior. The county commissioners should be the ones who take responsibility. Um, whether the polis mask mandate is legal, I don't know. Uh, Senate uh, House Minority Leader Tim Neville said there's going to be a lawsuit. You know, I, I read the order, and it's pretty vague about where the authority for that is coming from. He cites the, the Colorado Emergency Powers Act. I read it. I'm not sure I see any where he's got the authority for this, but we'll, 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 we'll see in court. But it, it's at least potentially questionable. Um, part of the problem on the, the mask, on people wearing masks voluntarily, which I think they should, um, has been so much media miscoverage we, and, and, and government lying. 
the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization, which actually, when you look into it, have a decades-long record of lying to the public about public health, uh, lied to us again in February and March and said masks don't work. And so now people hear these same organizations flipping around and say they do. You know, all the media, I, I remember the stories on Denver TV saying don't wear a mask. If you do, you're selfish. Oh, now if you don't wear a mask, now you're selfish. People have been getting whipsawed, and everybody doing the whipsawing has thrown away their credibility. On top of that, we have the extreme and unnecessary degree severity of some of the lockdown orders We're in, in here and around the country. People couldn't go to their, their uh, mother's funeral. Uh, but then, then while that's going on, then at the same time, you can have these mass protests in the streets and, and with, without face coverings, Mayor Hancock included. And then the, the vandalism of the Capitol, which are pusillanimous executive branch would, still hasn't done anything about. So it's no wonder there's no credibility. But I'll say, who's, here's somebody who does have credibility, uh, Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman, uh, who was at the press conference urging uh, in, in, in support of the mandate. He's right. He's been, cons- he's been consistent and is an honest guy throughout his political career. And if you don't believe that masks will protect you and will protect other people, I'd urge you to go to the Complete Colorado website and read my article from last March on the topic. The, the science is clear uh, that masks, even low-quality ones, all of them stop some inbound transmission and some outbound transmission. Better masks do more, but every mask does at least something, and it not only protects your neighbor, it protects you. Eric Sonderman, a political analyst and a columnist with Colorado Politics. Um, in 20, actually, probably before 2020, but especially in 2020, we've been able to politicize everything. Uh, I guess it's, so it shouldn't surprise us that we somehow found a way to politicize masks, uh, even if there is medical data like uh, David talked about uh, from trusted organizations that, that talk about the effectiveness of masks. Where do you think this goes politically for Jared Polis now that he has to be the face of this issuing a mandate? Well, I think Jared Polis is, you know, firmly in charge of uh, the Colorado governor's office. I think he believes that he is there for as long as he wants to be there. And I think he's probably right about that. Uh, Some of this makes you appreciate Jared Polis. We could have Governor Brian Kemp, who's the governor of Georgia, who instead of imposing a a statewide mask mandate has gone the exact opposite direction and is suing various localities, including Atlanta, which has been being hit very, very hard with this latest spike. And he's suing them over their own local mandates and saying that their local mandates are null and void and, uh, and, and, and should go away. So compared to a lot of governors around the country, Jared Polis looks pretty, pretty darn good at the moment. It is so interesting. We've talked before on this show, Dominic, that this has become, of all the cultural flashpoints out there, of all the very legitimate and contentious issues out there, that we are fighting over masks. David and David's points uh, are are well taken in, in terms of some confusion out there and in terms of some pushback. But there's just, it's undeniable that masks do make a difference. They make a difference both for you and for the person that you are passing by in the aisle or interacting with or uh, or, or what have you. Uh, and to not wear one is just striking me or to resist this order is a silly is a silly statement. It's a silly hill to fight on. 
Uh, I'm also impressed by the extent to which the business community, the education community, others have been pushing for this uh, order and are applauding this order because it removes any ambiguity and it no longer forces that sales clerk to be the bad guy, uh, to, to be the one to tell somebody either put on a mask or get out of the store. It removes the ambiguity. It provides some more uniformity, provides more authority. Good on Jared Polis. Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist, joining us. Uh, it's great to have you here this week, Natasha. Um, when I look at this, I mean, it's probably a difficult decision for Governor Polis to make, but it's going to be easier for him to make this call than it would be to put the pressure on some poor assistant manager at Target who is uh, being told uh, by a screaming customer that they don't have a right to tell him what he, that person can or can't do. When, in fact, I've been told by 7-Eleven over the years that with no shirt, no shoes, no service, I've taken that seriously. So maybe I should be able to take that seriously if I walk into a local Target, but that's me. Natasha, as you look at this, did Governor Polis make the right call? Did it come too late or was it the appropriate timing? Well, I'm glad you've been following 7-Eleven's advice all this time. I, I can't think of a conversation that is more in need of a reset button than this particular one. Um, we just need to almost ignore everything that has been said in the past few months and start over with the question of public health, not about politics, but about what this does for people. I like that this came from a statewide perspective because, the, as, as Eric mentioned, as you mentioned, there's a trickle-down effect here. The people who are enforcing it were not police officers who are coming in to give trespassing tickets. It's been those individual store clerks. It's been people who are already putting themselves in a risky position to stock our grocery stores, to make sure that the food um, distribution line isn't disrupted. And it just seems like too much to put on them um, and a requirement to make uh, store participants also wear masks. So if I have one thing that I could ask for America right now, and there's a lot I could ask of this country right now, but I think it would be starting over this conversation about masks, looking at the reasons why you might be for or against it, trying to persuade people in your life on a small level to, to buy into a system that we know is effective and helping to stop the spread of this virus so that small businesses can continue to operate, so that our schools might eventually open, so that our country can restart in, in new and different ways. And if we can have those conversations on an individual basis, maybe we can do a better job of amplifying the uses of use of masks across the country. Denver City Council is working on a handful of charter changes that would shift some power from the mayor to the council. Amanda Sawyer's measure to require council approval for mayor appointees passed its second vote this week and now heads to the ballot for a final decision from Denver voters. Next week, the council will vote on Candy Sedebaca's measure to move the Office of the Independent Monitor out from under the mayor's control. It will also vote on Robin Kanicha's measure to allow the council to change the city budget to mid-year. Uh, David, we go to you first on this one. It feels like the council's come up with a lot of ways to take at least some power away from the mayor and put it under the council. Uh, do you think Denver voters will agree with this idea? I think probably yes for at least some of them. And, and just for folks who are not local government law nerds, the, the Denver City Charter is like the, the constitution for Denver, the, the frame of its government. So when there are, are changes to it, they have to be approved by the voters. And Denver has what's called a strong mayor form of government, sort of the, the opposite of, uh, say, Boulder, where the, the mayor is more of an honorary position and the city manager really runs the city subject to the city council's supervision. 
on the requiring the high-level appointees like the, the sheriff and, and others uh, to be approved by the city council, that, that seems to make sense, and that, that's used in lots of d- types of government, and it, it is part of the checks and balances uh, to get somebody who will be able to work with, with, every, uh, with, with the broadest uh, constituency. So uh, I, I hope that one gets approved. Uh, Councilwoman Kanicha's uh, proposal on the budget it's got the pro on it is when you have mid-year changes to the budget like this enormous uh, trove of federal money that poured into the city uh, for the CCP uh, virus epidemic relief. Um, the mayor basically had the, the sole decision about how it was going to be spent, and you would think it should be a more Republican uh, setup where the elected council would, would have some say on that. On the other hand, the risk is with, with the Kanich proposal, you also have the city council says, oh, it's mid-year, and, and look, we've got a surplus, so let's, uh, let's raid the reserves and, uh, and, and spend it on some pet projects, and, and, and you know, uh, we'll get seven councilmen to each get a little bit of it, and then we'll get a majority, when you really should be holding on to it uh, in, in case there are unforeseen emergencies in the second half of the year. Eric, as you look at this, is a more balanced mayor-council power structure for Denver a good idea? I don't personally object to it. It's sort of a new phenomenon. We've, As David pointed out, Denver has a very strong mayor form of government, uh, unlike the state of Colorado, where the governor is institutionally rather weak. The legislature has much more power in the state, despite current, uh, the, despite Governor Polis's current use of his emergency powers. But institutionally, uh, the governor doesn't have that much authority. I think council has long chafed at their sort of lack of authority, but this is the first real council with these five newcomers who have done more than chafe. They're really aggressively pushing back with specific proposals, some of which may be headed to the voters uh, this fall. My political analysis is the same. I think some of these, perhaps all of these are likely to pass. I think voters like balance, like balance of power, like accountability. And in terms of confirming appointees, I think you need to be very explicit about which appointees we're talking about. And in terms of the mayor's personal office, et cetera, he should be able to have who he or she wants in there. But in terms of cabinet level appointees, the president needs his approved by the U.S. Senate. The governor needs his approved by the Colorado State Senate. So I don't object to that as an appropriate legislative function. Right. And as a Denverite who's been covering Denver for quite a while, uh, how do you think this is going to go down for voters in November? Well, I, I don't think any of them should be surprised. In fact, if they participated in last year's election, they maybe voted for some of these candidates specifically because they said they wanted to make charter changes, that they wanted to change the way that the leadership and management of the city um, occurs. So they're following through with that, that um, I guess, that request and that platform that they ran on. Um, and now we're seeing that sort of come into to motion. There are many ways to lead a city. And the strong mayor model is used in several large cities across the country. Um, What's interesting, though, is the ebb and flow. And and that makes sense. I mean, that's how democracy is made. That's how we how we do this thing that we call 
America, which is looking at powers and determining what needs to reside where. And right now, I think what we heard in last year's um, municipal election was that people wanted some changes in the way the city was moving. And that's why the city council had the turnover that it did in part. There were many factors that, of course, went into that. But seeing these things happen now just to me seems like the next um, chapter in a conversation that's been going on for a long time. What will be interesting, though, is knowing the situation that we're in right now with a pandemic, if that changes any voters' opinions about leadership and the strong mayor model. So while I do think that these charter changes will probably go through pretty easily, it may not be as quick of a decision for some voters as it might have been, say, a year ago. But most decisions these days aren't. Indeed. Uh, Patty, probably hard not for Mayor Hancock to take these personally. Uh, He's the mayor right now, but he's term limited. He's already uh, almost a year into his uh, third term, third and final term. Does he need to fight these actively or does he just need to let this be a decision between the council and the voters of Denver? Well, if I were him, I would just let them go. We have to remember not only in the last election were some incumbent council people booted, But Hancock in the first round only got, what, 37 percent of the vote? And it was just two days ago that he, uh, two days ago this last year, that he was, um, made his speech, was re, um, took on his third term. And if you read the speech, which I just did from a year ago, it's like you're talking about a different world. And I don't get any sense that people right now are looking to give more power to one person unless it's a magical person who can take away COVID-19. So in this case, I see certainly appointments uh, for the police chief, the fire chief, the sheriff, positions that have been very controversial. I see that going through as a no-brainer. There's also another proposal Debbie Ortega put forward that we didn't mention, which is professional services, that city council would be able to hire an architect or lawyers if they are disagreeing with things that are going on in the mayoral administration so they wouldn't have to rep- uh, to um, rely on the city's people. That's a good move, too. So I think these are going to go through. Tough to get a quick take on this, but we'll need to do that. Colorado school districts continue to work on their COVID-related back-to-school plans this week. Aurora Public Schools announced that with the help of community foundations, it will offer its teachers COVID testing every two weeks. Meanwhile, Denver Public Schools announced that fans and window units will not be allowed in its 55 schools that do not have air conditioning. Denver still finalizing its plans regarding possible remote learning options. Eric, we go to you first on this one. I mean, if the the masks were political, I got to believe the way we look at schools is only going to be worse. Um, How do you think this is going to go for the multitude of school districts districts across the state of Colorado? Oh, wow. What a hard one for a quick take. I'll I'll do my best. Uh, First of all, just on a personal level, it makes me grateful that I'm no longer involved, whether it's as a parent with a kid in school, as a board chair of a charter school, a board chair in years past of an independent school. I do not admire... Uh, whether it's board members or principals or superintendents, what they're having to go through right now, all the considerations that they are having to juggle. On top of that, you have in Denver Public Schools, um, 55 schools, I believe is the number, without air conditioning. If they start in August, in the heat of August, and now they're being told they can also not use window air conditioning or swamp coolers or even a fan to circulate air because of the potential spread of the virus, I guess my main point, Dominic, would be whatever plans are going to be in place in July and August are going to have to be incredibly because who knows how this situation is going to develop. And the plan in August will likely not be the plan in November. 
Natasha, return to school in August is already rife with challenges in any year. Now it seems to do all that by standing on your head and do it backwards uh, with the, in this kind of a crisis. How do you think the major school districts in the metro area are going to respond? Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of that scene in Wayne's World where they're trying to play street hockey and it's game on and then game off every time a car goes back. I can't imagine how difficult this is for school districts to plan for. But I also know that the impact that this has on parents, um, guardians and employers is immense. And that that issue isn't going away. I think what's incredible is we, we know that in this pandemic world, pivot is perhaps the word of 2020. Um, but in this case, we're going going to be asking these parents and employers and schools to keep pivoting on an almost daily, perhaps even hourly basis as we adjust to that. And at the same time, we're going to ask kids to carry an incredible burden during this time. And I think that's one of the conversations, um, you know, in our country, childcare and education has become so synonymous. They, they are just linked in a way that we can't undo. But in the midst of that is, is the kids who, who actually just need this education. And so I think the schools do a good job of, of of keeping that focus, but as as the media looks at it, as the society looks at it, let's not forget about what the kids um, need during this time as well, because they're carrying a burden during this pandemic as well. Patty, should there be and will there be any sort of collective leadership on this from any point of view, whether it be state, local, any sort of government, any any sort of leader that's going to have anything that all the different districts can at least apply? We would hope so, because here's the issue. It's so tough for kids, for parents who thought they would not would be able to go back to work, wouldn't have to be homeschooling. We're now looking at them stuck with this position. Do they want to keep their kids at home because they don't feel that they're going to be safe in the schools? Or the, the compromises you have to make are very tough. We're not done talking about this. It's going to be the big, big issue in the next few months. David, wrap it up for us. Let's, I commend the Denver Public Schools for doing the right thing by offering families choice. They're going to be opening five days a week for families that want to go back to school and may need to do that, but they're also going to have online education for families that, for their own reasons, want to do that. that that's the, the, the best approach, and I hope all school districts within their capabilities can do that. It's also time to lift any kind of enrollment caps on online charter schools because they do have the expertise at high-quality online education. Well, it's time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, we know we're heading into the election season, which is the only thing that maybe makes COVID-19 look like something you want to talk about. <laughs> we have the worst new ad already coming from the National Republicans. Talk about adding insult to injury. Erin Martinez, who lost her husband and brother in the explosion in Firestone in 2017, now gets to watch her house blow up in an ad attacking John Hickenlooper. It's inaccurate. It's not like Gardner hasn't taken money from Anadarko, too. They've asked for the ad to be pulled. The Republicans have said no. We don't need this in Colorado right now. And it's July. <laughs> David. Uh, last week, I, identified, I misidentified uh, Representative Leslie Herod by describing her as a state senator. She is currently a Denver Democratic state representative. I'm sorry. I was using a script from 2026 when she will be uh, undoubtedly a Colorado state senator or in a higher position. <laughs> Charter member of the Leslie Herod uh, uh, campaign. Very ni nice, nice uh, correction there, David. Eric, let's go to you. 
Hey, Leslie Harrod may be in a position far higher than state senator uh, six years from now. We'll see. I don't know if this is a disgrace, but it's still something wrong. Jason Glass, the well-regarded superintendent of Jefferson County Schools, announced here in the midst of the probably the most difficult summer of any school district school superintendent that he's taken a job back in his home state of Kentucky. Sometimes when opportunity knocks, you need to not answer the door and stay and see the job through. Jason Glass should stay and see the job through in Jefferson County under the circumstance. Natasha. In a summer where we'd normally be watching the Olympics and celebrating all the ways in which the United States could be victorious and set goals and standards around the globe, instead we're watching uh, the country take the lead on COVID cases. Um, not shaming here. I hope anyone who contracts it um, gets over it and recovers well. But this is not the type of record America wants to be setting right now. Time to see something nice about somebody. Patty? We're heading into the great, vast outdoors, as Governor Polis would want us to, up to Crested Butte, where they had to cancel the Wildflower Festival this year, but where the town of Gothic, if you've ever seen it, old ghost town, where they have a Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory that's been doing great work since 1928, is just protected by a conservation easement. So let's remember there truly is a great, vast outdoors, and it needs to be protected. David. Representative Tom Sullivan, who has sometimes uh, sponsored some, some poorly drafted legislation, got signed into law some good legislation, partly, I suppose, based on his experience as a postman, uh, to improve the, the mail-in ballots and say, for example, if the county's mailing some, a ballot to someone within 11 days of the election, they have to send it by first-class mail. Eric. A New York Times editor and writer named Barry Weiss, who resigned this week, writing a very powerful piece that viewers ought to go find online and read, criticizing the Times and journalism more broadly for a groupthink, for making some topics and some opinions completely off limits, for a level of vitriol internal to the paper that is unbecoming. It was a powerful piece. Good on her and go read it. Natasha. I may be repeating myself here, but I just have to say that since the pandemic started, I spent a lot of time interviewing small business owners, and I'm so impressed with the ways that they've become both public health experts, um, grant writers, loan writers, and everything in between to keep their businesses and their community uh, a vibrant space. So thank you to small business owners in Denver and Colorado. I want to say something nice about uh, one of our regular panelists who was with us last week, Joey Bunch, who uh, sadly his uh, nephew, his 38-year-old nephew, uh, lives in Alabama, uh, passed away over the weekend uh, from COVID. Uh, he wrote a very poignant article, a piece about this in Colorado Politics. If uh, you have not had a chance to check, check it out, please do. I think it's, um, it is an unbiased, nonpartisan, just uh, honest look uh, from an uncle uh, about his nephew and I'm in the midst of this, I think, and, and quoting uh, Joey from last week, uh, we don't need to be Republicans or Democrats, let's just be Americans. If you need some inspiration for that, check out his piece on coloradopolitics.com. That is all the time we had for Colorado Inside Out this week. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, thank you so much for joining us. Good night.